uh, got the uh, Andy like this background that I had. I uh, put up different virtual backgrounds. This is a calligraphy by the Vajra Regent. And uh, it's a, a dragon, but it has tiger stripes as well. So it's kind of a, a combo, combo feature. Um, yeah, I was very uh, pleased uh, to offer to sub for Andrew today. He uh, said that he was burned out from 100, over 100 hours of online broadcasts. And, and I understand when you're, when you're giving a talk or you're presenting, you, you have to be on. And it really, um, you know, it, it, it jazzes you up and gets the juices flowing and then takes some time to calm down. And, uh, it's, you know, it, it's, uh, uh, it can, it can wear you out. So, uh, I asked him what he wanted me to talk about and he said, Oh, you know, <laughs> uh, and, and I wanted to start by saying, I'm, I'm going to just make a couple of comments and that I'm not as deeply read and do not have the collection of quotes that Andrew does. So, uh, my style's a, a little bit different, but <clears throat> excuse me, I did want to start us off with a, uh, a little bit of meditation. And I think I mentioned in a, uh, in a previous class, in a previous uh, hangout session, that I, um, I have something called stop, drop, and breathe. And when you're on fire, you're supposed to stop, drop, and roll. Uh, stop running around and doing anything and just drop to the ground and then roll to put the fire out. So when our brains are on fire, and that's how things are with the, you know, we have the combination of the, uh, let's see, we have the pandemic that's ongoing. We have the civil unrest and uh, issues of racial inequality and social injustice, uh, plus lots of extra news about politics and, and our place in the world. So. You know, it's like a trifecta of stress. Um, and what I mentioned before is in Zen monasteries, they have someone ringing the bell at random times during the day and everyone's supposed to stop what they're doing, drop into their awareness practice and breathe, take a few breaths. So, um, we have all these signals during the day and it's actually transformed my driving practice, my uh, driving a car, that uh, I use red lights as my signal to stop, drop, and breathe. So, so I'm not so eager now to make it through the yellow. I'm saying, oh, well, here's a chance to meditate. And we can use all the signals that we get of our phones beeping and our computers beeping and, uh, and uh, pretty much everything all these different sounds and signals that we get to, to do a, re a reverse of our reaction. Uh, a, guy, a gentleman named Herbert Benson wrote a book called The Relaxation Response. And it was about training yourself to have a relaxation response instead of a stressed out response to usual stressors. And so we can take that, that opportunity to all through the day to do what Andrew calls his one breath meditation. Um, for me, I, I usually find that uh, I'd rather do about three breaths 
And when, when I try to do a one breath meditation with Andrew, his breathing is so slow, it takes me a couple to catch up. So one, two, three, a few breaths, whatever, whatever it takes to um, return to that sense of calmness and presence. So let's do that together. Let's, uh, as, as they say, um, they told us in school, sit up and pay attention. So let's take our good posture. And let's do three breaths. And the first breath you can do with your eyes closed uh, and, and make that a grounding breath in which you drop out of your head and into your body and really feel your body awareness. And then the second breath, open your eyes but gaze slightly downward and make that a close placement breath or a, a, a connection with your breathing the sensation of filling as you breathe in and emptying as you breathe out. And then the third breath, raise your gaze straight ahead and make that perceptual awareness, that, that taking in the sense of environment and space around you as you breathe in and extending your awareness in all directions as you breathe out, okay? So let's do that together, a three breath meditation. Let your eyes close, breathe in, Drop into your body, breathe out. Open your eyes, but gaze down, breathe in, awareness of filling, breathe out, awareness of empty. Raise your gaze straight ahead, breathe in, an awareness of the space around you, breathe out, particularly out breath in this one, connecting and letting your awareness extend out farther and farther and farther into space. So that's a great practice you can do anytime to go from grounding to close placement to environmental awareness. And um, the Vajra region taught me uh, a practice for three breaths that basically uh, through the Buddhist path, uh, is a direction that you can go. And if you're an experienced Vajrayana practitioner, you can do the first breath connecting with Shamatha Vipassana, the second breath connecting with Shunyata, and the third breath with Ground Mahamudra, which is expansive awareness with no reference point. That's a, a little, that's going a little deeper to, to start with, but I wanted to share that with you. Uh, the other thing <clears throat> that I wanted to share that connects with mindfulness practice is something that I've discovered as uh, I've been teaching over the years, and that is the tendency that uh, instructors have and that people think of, first of all, uh, that, that our basic, basic state of being is one of distraction and confusion and, and, and daydreaming. And that we have to we have to find the here and now. We have to find presence. And so, so sometimes they teach it. They say when you realize that your mind was wandering, come back to the here and now. Come back to the present moment. Well, I, I have some good news for you, and that is, you're always in the present moment. It's that you're the 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 distraction or the daydreaming is an overlay on that. It's an overlay. Unless you have a time machine in your backyard, 
your body is always, its location in space is always here and its location in time is always now. So you are always here and now, but your mind is a time machine that leaves, spends time in the past, in the future, someplace else in the present. And so when we wake up out of a daydream, it's like waking up in the morning. Now, this isn't, this isn't for lucid dreaming. If you, didn't, if you weren't lucid dreaming, if you were just dreaming, and then you wake up, the contrast is you realize, oh, I was dreaming. And you realize that because you're already awake. You don't think, I was dreaming, I should wake up now. In the same way, when you, come, when you pop out of a daydream in, in your meditation practice, you don't have to think, oh, I should, I should go, come back to the present. You're already back. What you come back to, what you come back to is the object of attention that you chose for your practice. Because mindfulness it means two things. One, it's a state of being, and that is the state of being fully present in body and mind to your experience moment to moment to moment. But it's, it's, so it's a state of being, but it's also a practice. And the practice is when you realize you have been wandering, you're already back. What you bring yourself back to is what you had chosen as your object of attention. So the word for shamatha, shine, uh, in Tibetan, uh, translates at, or uh, I'm sorry, that's not shamatha, but mindfulness is sati in the ancient Indian language. I'm not sure if it's Sanskrit or Pali, but sati um, is often translated as recollection. But you could put a hyphen in there after the RE and say it's recollection. You are recollecting yourself as to what you were doing in the present moment. And another translation of sati is actually remembering what you were doing. So we all know what it feels like to not have that mindfulness. You were headed for the kitchen to do something, you got distracted and you took care of that. And then you, you go into the kitchen and you go, okay, why did I come in here? <laughs> We've all had that moment of experience. That's not remembering what you're doing. So mindfulness is simply remembering what you're doing. And the good news is you're already back. And I talked about this with Andrew, he really liked the metaphor. You can think of your awareness as the the basic stratum or stratum of, of your being, the basic mode of your being. And what gets laid on top of that is discursive thinking, commentary, mental commentary, and, and daydreaming into the past and future. But that overlay isn't solid. That overlay is more like Swiss cheese that has lots of holes in it. And you move along on it, and you move along on it, and along on it until whoop, you drop down in, you hit one of the holes and there you are in the substratum of natural wakefulness. Um, if daydreams were solid, we would go into one and never come back. So they always have gaps. They always have those holes. And the practice of mindfulness, the, the objective is to make those holes bigger and bigger and bigger. So that we spend more time in that stratum of natural wakefulness and shorter periods of time when we get distracted and lose track of what we're doing. So I wanted to share that with you. And, and the last thing is connecting with some things that Andrew talked about last time and, and what are 
is so much in our awareness now, and that is fear, hatred, and anger. And they are all a constellation. They all go together. Uh, the first seminar I ever went to by taught by Trungpa Rinpoche was at Christmas time in 1971. It was the Six Realms seminar. And he talked about um, all, the, all these different realms of being, both cosmological and psychological. But the, the quality of the hell realm has this quality of fear, anger, and hatred. Now, how do they connect? Well, fear is, as, as we've talked about it, it's kind of essential. If you never had any fear, you would do a lot of stupid things. And as according to Charles Darwin, you'd be taken out of the gene pool. <laughs> so, so fear has a survival function, but when it takes over as survival and you misinterpret situations as survival is issues, then fear triggers the fight, flight, or freeze reaction. Now, how does that tune into hatred? Well, um, freezing doesn't work so much in intense situations. And flight means you just want to get out of it. So, so freezing is kind of the ignorance reaction. Flight, ironically, is an attachment reaction that you want something, you want to be somewhere else. Well, if you can't do those two and you're stuck with the fight reaction, it's hard to fight something that you like. Harder still to fight something that you love. But it's easier to fight and get motivated to fight something that you don't like, and even easier, something that you hate. So the reaction to fear that's connected with the aversion of the three poisons, not ignorance or, or attachment, but aversion, triggers and reinforces hatred. And the emotional response that connects with that is anger. So, ironically, it helps us understand both sides of what's going on in the current situation. Now, we all know the fear side that goes with the pandemic and wanting to isolate ourselves. That connects more with the flight part. But the fighting part, the civil unrest, when a policeman arrests a, a, a black person, what's going on from both sides? And I, I love that, um, I think the gentleman's name was Charlesy in one of the previous sessions. He said, don't say, I, I can't imagine what you're going through. What he said was, try, try to find out and experience and learn what I'm going through. So from the black person's side, um, oh, and, and when, when anger, I forgot to mention, when anger comes up, we need to solidify it to kind of hold our energy. As we've talked about before, the emotional reactivity to, to something, uh, that, that hit and that pumping out of the juices starts to subside in 60 or 90 seconds. So we have to keep a certain logic going that keeps us being angry. 
And angry logic always misinterprets a situation. Either, uh, so it's sort of intentional ignorance. You want to ignore what doesn't fit your anger. And so it, it perpetuates and we see things in a way that, make, that reinforces our view. So a black person is going to see uh, a cop questioning him as here's the sequence of thoughts. I could get arrested just, I got pulled over for not putting on my turn signal. He's getting me out of the car. That means I'm gonna get arrested, which means I'm gonna get taken to jail, possibly mistreated and very possibly die. So in five thoughts, I'm at risk of death. And when that rep reptilian part of our brain has fear, it doesn't, it doesn't really sort out, am I just gonna get hurt? Am I gonna get hurt badly or am I gonna die? It all feels like the same thing. So you can understand why simply being asked a question by a policeman could arouse these feelings of, I might die. And a policeman asking, you know, pulling a black person over and getting any sense of their reaction and their fear and their potential for resisting arrest uh, triggers all those same things for that person. So they're both acting irrationally. The thinking part of the, uh, the question is, how could these people do the unthinkable? Well, it's unthinkable because they can't use the thinking part of their brain. The deep part of the brain has taken over and they're both in fight mode. And so policemen do ridiculous things in, and knowing that their cameras are on and that they're going to get in trouble for it. But they're not thinking, they're reacting. And the black person isn't stopping to think, maybe, maybe he's just gonna give me a ticket. He's thinking, I, I could die from this interaction. So that helps us understand how fear, hatred, and anger all tie in together and lets us understand both sides and why things escalate so fast. So those are some thoughts that I wanted to share with you. And uh, I'd love to hear your comments or questions and, and we can talk about it. Andy, did you have some left over from last time? Yeah, I have a few that uh, we can start with. Here's one. Um, what is the difference between basic goodness and emptiness? That's an interesting question. And who asked that one? Uh, I'm not sure. Sorry. Oh, okay. That's all right. The difference between basic goodness and emptiness. Um, well, it takes us a uh, let's unpack a little bit. Uh, when we talk about emptiness, there are different points of view on that, different perspectives. So if we're comparing it to basic goodness, we should take the, the perspective of the Shentong school or Mahamudra school. Uh, and that is understanding how, what the nature of that emptiness is. The, uh, so to start with, there are four basic principles. One is everything is mind. And that's very much the Yogacharya school. But if you think everything is mind, you could fall into the error that this mind is a thing. So the second statement is that mind is empty. So here's the first introduction of emptiness. 
but there's a subtle error that you could fall into and think of it in a conceptual way as a conceptualized emptiness or as mere emptiness also sometimes talked about as dead emptiness like the vacuum of outer space having just being a blank so to remedy that is a third statement and that is that emptiness is marked by luminosity has the is imbued with luminosity or radiant clarity so it's not just a dead emptiness it's a dead emptiness endowed with this this supreme quality of radiant clarity and then but you could subtly think well that radiant clarity is something that is created or arises dependently or interdependently so to remedy that last one it's that that radiant clarity is spontaneously present it exists without it does not arise it is spontaneously present it is not subject to arising or uh, decay so everything is mind that mind is empty that emptiness is imbued with luminosity or radiant clarity and that radiant clarity is spontaneously present now that emptiness endowed with all the supreme aspects that the aspects of wakefulness or radiant clarity those aspects are sometimes referred to as buddha nature so this emptiness endowed with buddha nature is essentially the same as basic goodness and trungpa rinpoche when someone asked him that question they said what's the difference between basic goodness and buddha nature he said why don't you stop asking the difference and ask how they're the same or how they're similar so it's a different language and a different context for saying the same essentially the same thing because that basic goodness is basic it is not something that is created by causes and conditions great next question yeah and some questions looks like are starting to come in um okay one second right back grab something there you go you had a chance to look at that whole calligraphy all right um my question is related with practice as a spiritual practitioner engaged in daytime practices and then also a as a beginner of these nocturnal practices I'm about seven years into my daytime practice with Shambhala. Any advice on how to balance the two without feeling overwhelmed? Where would you prioritize your time? And what would provide more bang, uh, bang for my time, in your opinion? Um, I think this is a, especially the nocturnal practices. That's Andrew's specialty. Uh, so we may want to ask him again. But the, the interaction of the two, um, is to use daytime practices to support your nocturnal practices. Now, when you say, how much time should I spend on the nocturnal practice? I'm not sure if you mean, should I sleep 16 hours a day instead of eight hours a day? Uh, I, I'm assuming that's not the, that's not the plan. But um, uh, the idea is to use the time that you do sleep as your nocturnal practice time so that before you go to bed you set the intention 
that you're going to practice as much as your awareness allows you to do so uh, throughout the evening. Um, now, you may have an extended time. I know Andrew sometimes recommends staying up for a little bit when you wake up in the middle of the night. So you may actually extend it to nine hours for your, your sleep period if you, if you have that luxury. Um, but the idea is that whenever you do wake up, that again, it's, you're mindful, you remember what your intention was, and that is to do your nocturnal practices, the, the various dream yoga practices that, that are available. And then in the morning, you wake up and, and it's kind of a, a flip side of what you do during the day. You wake up in the morning and reflect on how well you did your nocturnal practices and set the aspiration to do better the next evening. In the same way that during the day, when you wake up, you set the intention to practice during the day and before you go to bed, you reflect on how well did I do today and you set your aspirations for the next day. The practices that, that overlap are the um, dream yoga practices that you can do during the day to set yourself up for better practice in the evening because the dream yoga practice relies on remembering. Remembering to check to see and to, to recognize that you're dreaming, to recognize as you're in the dream that you're dreaming. So during the day, you follow those practices of checking on things, um, saying, you know, the next time I see uh, a bird or I see a, a book, I'm going to think, is this a dream? Am I dreaming? that kind of practice. And so you can actually implement that as part of your mindfulness in action during the day. I hope that's helpful. And you can ask more thoroughly to Andrew when he comes back. So I'm gonna jump into some of the live comments now. And uh, this isn't so much a question, but a comment you may wanna hear and then possibly riff on. Um, I appreciate the explanation of fear which you had explained in the context of police. But I need to speak up here and say that when we speak of law enforcement point of view, the issue appears to be that actions taken, no matter how brutal and violent, are done with impunity. So that the casualness with which we witnessed Mr. George, George Floyd being executed on video was all the more shocking because it is so apparent that the cop had no fear. Um, that's, an, that's an interesting question. Uh, I I don't think that that's the case. Uh, I think that the reaction, um, it's, a, it's, a more, it's a less surface fear, but a deeper, very, very deep, ongoing, perpetual fear. And, and, and let's dig a little deeper on this kind of fear. And, and it may be why um, uh, it's the fear that motivates bullies. You know, bullies look like they don't have any fear, but it comes out of a deeper fear of personal insecurity and fear that they're not a good enough or big enough or important enough person. Um, this goes all the way to the top, if I may say so. This kind of insecurity that creates bullying and abuse and, and is a deep-seated um, fear that goes beyond the, the circumstance. But, but it's, like, it's like a thin 
layer covering, you know, it's, it's like a thin layer. Uh, there's a volcano under there and you're on the rim and it could, it could erupt any time. And, and it doesn't take much to trigger that. And you can see, if you watch the video, that it might've been a very innocent comment, but they already had George Floyd in the car and something made this guy drag him out and, and pound on him and, and, and get on his neck. And even though he looked very casual at that point, you know, while he was on the neck, at that point it had gone beyond fear and was pure hatred and anger. So uh, I think that that's the answer that there is fear there and it, it's a volcano underneath and that kind of reactivity is the case in everybody, every bully, every bully in the world, all the way up to dictators. If, okay. if that person's here and wants to make another comment, just you can make, you can unmute them. Sure, I'll keep you posted. Here's um, a question from the chat. Often it is said to put one's attention on the heart rather than the mind. Is abiding in the heart a way of being or also putting the attention physically where the heart is? Is meditating a way of resting awareness in the heart? Okay. Um, <clears throat> is that in the chat? Yes. I can look at that while I'm, while I'm answering. Let me see. Um, yep, got it. Okay, good. And, and thank you uh, to... Kalia you about that question about the, the fear. Um, this is bridge. Um, okay, so to start with, in Sanskrit, the word chitta means both heart and mind. Uh, and, and if you uh, look at what uh, in the Vajrayana, when we, we touch our forehead, our throat and our heart, to take refuge, <laughs> it's body, speech, and mind. So mind is more connected with thought, with, with heart. Thoughts are more connected with body. Our forehead, where we think our mind is, is actually more connected with body. And heart is here. So <clears throat> that's why when, when we talk about put one's attention on the heart rather than the mind, um, it's, it, it's not either or. The mind has two uh, qualities. We could say in a certain way, the mind has <clears throat> no qualities from the absolute point of view. It, it is like space, but it, that's the Dharmakaya. The Sambhogakaya, the, uh, the energetic aspect of mind, or it's the nature. The essence is this emptiness, but it is endowed with wakefulness. And that wakefulness its nature manifests, there are two basic qualities, the capacity to know and the capacity to feel. And they raise to the highest level, no, the capacity to know becomes wisdom, the capacity to feel becomes love. And so that we connect that with our heart. Love is connected with the heart, that capacity of feeling. So mind and heart, when they say, put one's attention on the heart rather than the mind, it's the heart of awareness rather than the thinking mind. That's the distinction that we're being made. Now, uh, again, we think of our, 
our minds as being in our heads, but that's only because our eyes, our ears, our nose, our mouth, everything that's going on is up here. Uh, but our mind, our, the location, it doesn't have a location. It's wherever we put our awareness. So sometimes it's helpful that say, put your awareness in your heart center. And that's the center at your heart level. So putting your attention more in your, um, in your body system, rather than your thinking mind is what we're talking about here. So is meditating a way of resting awareness in the heart? Well, meditating, there's so many different definitions of meditation. But we could say that the resting meditation, you can make your heart center the object of that resting meditation. In shamatha or resting, dwelling in peace, this is the definition of shine or shamatha, resting your mind on whatever that object of attention is. So as Andrew has talked about, a reverse meditation is resting your mind on the parade of thoughts. One kind of meditation is resting on the heart, and that has certain, certain qualities that it brings with it that gets you out of your head and into your body. So I would say experiment for yourself what that feels like. All right, um, we have some hands raised, so let's go to those and then we'll come back to some of the uh, chat questions. So first is Katie, and Katie, you have the audio. Hi, Katie. Hello. Hi. Thank you for taking on this job here, talking to all of us. And, and I don't know if this is a question that you want to answer or can answer, but it has to do with the, um, with the Tibetan Book of the Dead and the Bardo teachings and the, uh, the idea that the teachings are just as relevant to us this side of death as they are in the other side of death. And uh, that supposedly what they're describing there, um, particularly in the uh, the, bar, the painful borrow of dying, where the elements go through um, eight stages of dissolution, you know, mm -hmm. from, you know what I'm talking about there. Yes. So <clears throat> I, I can kind of see from my experience how we go from um, form to formalists over and over again in, in life all the time when we're alive. But I have a much harder time with the the dissolution of the elements like you know is that just way beyond anybody who's not like a buddha to actually experience the earth element you know dissolving mm -hmm. into um water and on, on down you know so so my question is like and you can address it at any level you want like how do you under like if you were trying to explain to somebody how the the tibetan book of the dead is relevant to life you could do that or if you could really take it to that level of how do you, can you experience this dissolution of the elements now yeah okay so um, yeah. To, to begin with mm -hmm. i had a, a interview with trungpa rinpoche in 1975 mm -hmm. before i was supposed to teach at the uh, seminary that year and he I, he said he had um a piece of advice, two pieces of advice for me. And one was, be willing to say, I don't know. That's very important. Okay. And the second was, it's okay if you leave people somewhat confused, but it's not okay if you leave them with a misunderstanding. Oh, wow. So okay. I will take it as far as I can take it uh, okay. and say, I don't know. 
some of the details at the level that Andrew does, because his study has been much more in depth. So you can ask again uh, the if you have the opportunity for him. Okay. Uh, what I do know is on the level of um, death and rebirth, that we talk about that as on a psychological level, that every moment, moment to moment to moment, we die to the person that we were and are reborn as someone new each moment. Mm -hmm. uh, the Six Realms seminar that I went to was all about that, dying to one realm and being reborn in another. And the mm -hmm. idea there is that we, um, we latch on, latch on to an identity. And that can be just a momentary identity within a situation. We say, okay, now I have a handle on it. We, we want solidity, we want security. Yeah. So now I got a handle on it. And, and so we go along like this, do, 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 okay? Thinking that it's all going to stay the same. And what happens is the, the work, when, when we're doing this, I got to try to do this in the, in the screen. <laughs> while, while we're going this way, the world starts going that way. <laughs> and we get farther and farther and farther apart <laughs> until, until our, our, that identity doesn't work anymore mm -hmm. and it doesn't fit what's going on and we try to make it fit and we edit the world as long as we can to make it fit but at some point we go that doesn't work and we die to that identity we go and we scramble mm -hmm. so you could look at those stages of dissolution if you look carefully as as who you think you are and how you think you need to be in a situation starts to devolve and starts to not work. Like, let's say you go to a party and you think that, that it's going to be a particular way. And, and you start to get the idea that you, uh, first of all, they were, you were told it's a costume party and you show up in a costume and nobody else is. So now you scramble. Okay? So the fear of death is right there, right at you, right? <laughs> Immediately. Oh my God, I'm going to die. Oh my God, I'm going to die. I, I, I want to. I want, okay. So then you scramble. What can I do to make this different than how it appears? Okay, so now you have the solid element disappearing. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then you, then you say, okay, I, I need... I, I need to say something. I need to say something. And then what you're saying only makes it worse. <laughs> and, and, and so now I don't know what element that would be that I, actually probably you get embarrassed and flushed and the fire element starts happening. <laughs> and then you, you go numb. And so the fire element dissolves and you can't feel anything. And you try to say something and the wind element and you can't even say anything and the wind element dissolves. And you go, uh, I got to get out. Okay, so so you could think of it that way as the element. If you look carefully, you'll see the elements dissolving as your validity in the situation disappears, dissolves, and and then and you die. And I always found it interesting if you look at the movies, the old westerns. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the guy just got shot, 
and, and, and his friend comes to comfort him and he says, he says, uh, I, I, I feel like I'm sinking into the ground. Help me up, help me up. So the first thing they do is, is lift him up a little bit on their knee. Right. right. And what's the next thing? I'm cold. I'm cold. Yeah. So, so the earth element was dissolving. Now the fire element is dissolving. Mm -hmm. Right. Or it may, I can't remember the order. Andrew knows this better. He knows it by heart. Yeah. Okay. He says, oh, I'm, I'm thirsty. No, the next one is I'm thirsty. Right. Right. Water is dissolving. Right. 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 Give him a drink. He goes, I'm cold. And they put a blanket over him. And, yeah. then, uh, and then the breath goes. Yeah. The old westerns show you just what the order is that that we dissolve. That the right. dissolve. So I hope that was fun and helpful. It was fun and helpful both. Thank you so much for taking it on. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Yeah. Okay, great. And um, next we'll go to Rana, who also has her hand raised. Hi, Rana. One sec, just getting her the audio. Sec, just getting her the audio. Hello. Uh, I do appreciate that you share about uh, the experiences you had with Chogyam Trumpa. It means a lot. Something very I profound. Love you. Beautiful 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 oh, <laughs> yeah, he's there. Um, I realized there is some practices or phenomena in human culture, no matter what culture, and that's chanting. And chanting, when it's somehow I connect with some chanting, that it takes me somewhere. I don't know, I don't know what is that. Chanting is, I'm sorry, I have a hard time hearing you. Andy, can you let her know the Andy, connection? Andy, can you let her know the connection? Maybe I, I take my video and hear because my yes, internet good is slow. Yes, good idea. Good idea. Yes. Okay. How about now, Rana? You want to try again? Yeah, so this, I'm not sure if you heard my um, question. No, your video is back on. Andy, maybe she should write it and then I can answer it. Yeah, good thinking. Well, we'll come, yeah, we'll come back to you, Rana, and I'll write to you in the message. Uh, but for the meantime, let's skip over to Peter now, who also has his hand raised. Well, hi, Joseph. Hi, Peter. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, my pleasure, um, truly. I had, um, some some thoughts when you mentioned at the very beginning about the uh, the the meditation practices, the the whole notion of body, speech, mind, you know, it's always impressed me so much because it's like something that covers all bases. 
Mm -hmm. In terms of body, speech, mind, you know, that's it. All of your existence can sort of be summed up and, and your inter interface with it. So in, when doing, in doing meditation, mindfulness meditation, particularly shamatha, I've often thought, or I, I thought <laughs> to myself, I, I think I ask myself, so what is the role of uh, the speech faculty here? Like thinking in a way is, you know, we're talking to oneself. We hear our own words. We see our own thoughts. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing shamatha, like the way it ought to be done or the best way, is there like a kind of suspension of all chatter, all dialogue, all talking that goes on? And then you can say, now I'm in the moment because there's, mm -hmm. not even, there's no speech going on. So everything that's, that's happening is me in the moment. But the moment I'm starting to think, even the thought that, oh, I'm doing this right, or, oh, this, is, this must be mindfulness because I'm doing it and I'm not distracted by anything else. But just this, this dialogue that's going on with myself, mm -hmm. can you explain like, what is that? And is that something to expect to eventually sort of become liberated from as well? Uh, I think that, thank you, Peter. That's, that is a good question. Um, it really is an issue that people um, take the thought process as some kind of enemy. Uh, and in fact, the, uh, as you go along the path, the idea is that you start to recognize the nature of things rather than just their appearance. Mm -hmm. So uh, when we talk about discursive thought and that dialogue, if that is removed from the, the rest of your experience, like a daydream, then you're separated from that experience. And that's why in, we say, when you realize that you were distracted, mm -hmm. you come back to the object of attention. And that's the practice of return, of recollecting yourself. And so, <laughs> so but the thoughts aren't an enemy they're part of what's happening now. If you know that you're thinking, then it's not really a problem. You're not being taken away from the present moment into an imaginary past or future. As a friend of mine once said, you know, you can watch the parade of thoughts. It's when you find yourself in the parade that you're getting swept, swept away by them. So, so the practice, and, and the practice isn't to block thoughts, but ultimately to see that the thoughts arise. And, and this is a good reference um, in the songs of Milarepa. Uh, one of his students says, you know, I, uh, I get the idea that the mind is like an ocean, but what do I do about the waves, the waves of thoughts? And he said, when you see that the, the ocean and its waves are not two, then you, then you understand. So when we see that the nature of mind when it's still, in other words, not thinking, but, but still, but perceiving, it's, a, it's awake, there's always this clarity, you're not unconscious, but the mind is still, as opposed to when the mind is moving in thoughts, and you see that there's no difference in the nature, then you relax. 
And that, that's the teaching. So um, to put it in a succinct way, have a sense of humor about the fact that you have those thoughts. And if you have a sense of humor about it, then you see them as the play of the mind like waves on the ocean. And that's really what they are. They're the play of, of the mind. And one of the, in the Kagyu lineage supplication, it, it says um, uh, to the meditator who uh, recognizes the unceasing play of the mind, uh, grant your blessing that they may realize the inseparability of samsara and nirvana. So there's no artificial battle that's being posed. Okay? Yeah, I, I thank you. That, that's, that's helpful. Now, as far as the, the speech function goes, um, it's a certain vibration that happens. And so as, as Rana was trying to ask about the chanting and the, and the it's, a, it's a vibration that, that's created in your being. And so uh, as that's the speech function when we're just doing shamatha is really more latent. It's, mm -hmm. it's how it manifests when we're doing something else and actually exercising our speech. But the speech function is more how are we interacting in communication with others? Yeah, I, I understand. Um, I wanted to mention also that when, when, I'm, when I'm doing meditation, a kind of a feedback that I get as to, you know, that I'm in the moment, that I'm in the present, is a kind of a, a, a loosening up or a, a kind of a relaxation at the back of my neck, in, in the back, at the base, mm -hmm. where to me, that's like unmistakable that I'm in the moment now because the moment it, it's not there. In the moment, there's a kind of a stress there. Like I usually associate that with um, not being in the moment. I'm thinking, I'm, I've got some, some uh, dialogue going on about the past or, or the future. And, yes. and, and then I get this indication. And then well, that's a, it's a contraction. A contraction, we have, right. We have a, the body and mind are connected so when we have mental contraction around something that we want to hold on to or push away or ignore, those are the three, right? We have a, a bodily reaction of that kind of contraction as well. Great. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. Let's go on to some more of the written questions. Um, to the explanation of emptiness and basic goodness, I struggle with the idea of consciousness. Wherein does this idea of consciousness align with emptiness, specifically as related to death and or the bardos? What is navigating the bardos if we are complete emptiness? Um, can I take a second, Andy? I, I saw a comment uh, in response to what I said about the fear and the, um, and the black and people and, and police. Uh, yes, um, the, the, this comment is from Michelle about black people are stopped only because they're black. It, you know, um, it's an expression that people have. D, you know, D, instead of driving while intoxicated, DWI, it's DWB, driving while black. And, and here in Southern California, we have DWM, driving while Mexican. Um, I, have a, I have a friend who was 
he teaches at a country club. He's a golf pro who teaches at a country club. He was pulled over on an on-ramp going onto a highway with guns drawn and said, get out of the car, reach slowly to your back pocket, don't make any fast moves. And he said, you know, why'd you pull me over? And he said, and they, the cop said, you matched the description of uh, uh, somebody we're trying to catch, exactly. And the question I would have is, if they were trying to catch a, a white person, do you think they would pull every white person going on that on-ramp over? Highly doubtful. So there's an institutionalized racism that goes so far back. It goes so deep in that fear. Um, it, it's primordial, it's archetypal. And, um, and, and that's the fear that, that also operates in, as this institutional racism. So I agree with you completely. Okay, I hope that's helpful. Um, what, this was the explanation on emptiness and basic goodness. Is that the question, Andy? Uh, yeah, that was the question I just read. Uh, the struggle of the idea of consciousness. Woo! <laughs> It reminds me of, uh, you know, why is there air? Um, the idea of consciousness and emptiness related to death and the Bardos. Well, um, I think that's a seminar that Andrew talking, taught in about 16 classes. So, so that's a lot of stuff. Let me, let me just find something that I can work with on here. What is na navigating the Bardos if we are complete emptiness? Ah, okay. So what is navigating the Bardos? What is navigating the Bardos is momentum. And Andrew's talked about this as the product of our karma. Okay, you know those, those little devices that, that are a frame with, with five steel balls hanging from threads? And you pick one up, you pick the, the end of one up and you let it go and the one at the other end goes. So what is it that moved from ball to ball? And the traditional Buddhist metaphor is, it's like a flame that's being passed from candle to candle. Is it the same flame? Is it a different flame? What's the nature of that flame? It, it has no substance. The flame has no substance, it's, it's energy. And so, What's navigating the Bardos is the momentum, the energy that was set up through karmic cause and effect, like the ball hitting the end, dropping into the end of that row of balls and sending the other one off. Um, so again, it is the emptiness endowed with radiant clarity that is somewhat covered over or carrying with it that um, pollution from ignorance, attachment, and aversion. And so that momentum is what carries through. But the substratum of radiant clarity and emptiness, that's there and it's independent of embodiment. That's not reincarnated. That's continuously there. Now, I, 
I know that I did not ha have you misunderstand that. It might have left you a little confused. Because it's not something graspable with intellectual concepts. Okay, thanks. Uh, here's the next question. Andrew often says, quote, mix your mind with space, end quote, when we move into non-referential shamatha. Could you riff on what this means to you and how we can do this mixing of the mind with space? Okay. Well, Andrew is the riffer. I'm, I, I don't know if I can riff right, in, in that way. But mixing mind and space um, is a, a, a way of describing the practice of working with the out-breath so that um, you mix, first you mix your mind with the breath and then as the breath mixes with space, it's essentially, the, it's a metaphor. As the breath goes out, it's, a, it's a, a real metaphor. As the breath goes out, what happens? It dissolves and diffuses into the space in front of you. And the key is that it's, the breath is part of me going out and it mixes with the space in the room and becomes not me. And you can't find the point at which that stops being me and starts being not me. So that's the interdependence of, my, of, of inner and outer. Now, of course, it depends on how much garlic and onions you have for lunch. It, it takes a little longer for it to stop being me and start being not me. But, but at some point it does. And so that's the physical metaphor for your mind is centered here. And when you open up and relax that grasping onto cent centralizing and decentralize the mind, mind and space become one. So the practice is to go out with the out breath and open your mind. And, and we do that by opening our peripheral vision and just letting it extend further and further and further. And when you do that, you find that there is no limit to the extent of awareness in the same way that there is no limit to the extent of space. So non-referential shamatha starts with the reference point of the breathing and then expands out into letting go of that and resting in space awareness because awareness and space are not two. Here's um, another question on the non-referential. Um, Okay, how do we move more, how do we move from more self-referential to no self-referential in moving through life? When Andrew talks about, quote, it's raining, that's referential. Raining is non-referential to any, quote, it. I'm trying to go deeper, I'm trying to go deeper levels of non-self-referential, but not sure what that really looks slash feels like. If something causes upset, is it to, is it to label upset uh, versus this is upsetting to me or I'm upset? Interesting. Uh, can, can I go back again to the current events and the, uh, 
the comment about answers on cops murdering people. Um, it is not an answer uh, on cops murdering people. It is under, it is, the idea is to understand where these things are coming from. So you have to unpack it to be able to address it. And you have to unpack what the, this psychological profile of a bully is and say that's something that we have to address and not have those people be the ones that are enforcing the law. So it, it is not, uh, it, it's exactly the, the comment is very accurate. Um, don't call the police in, in a situation that doesn't call for the police. Uh, and when you, the comment says dismantle white supremacy, uh, that is a whole cultural process, which I'm not saying don't do it because it's hard, but I'm saying understand it. Always, always first seek to understand, then you can seek to be understood. So um, we have to understand where this is coming from and why and what we need to do to protect people from the situation that, that escalates these things and work with the, and training the people who are going to face these situations to be able to work with their minds and work with their emotions so that they don't get overtaken in that same way. Um, and, and so it's not an excuse and it's not a license, please. I, I am absolutely not advocating that in any way. Okay, so now let's go to um, move from more referential to no self-referential in moving through life. Um, well, again, it's not a battle between self-referential and no self-referential. We have to have a sense of humor about the whole thing. No non-self or, or egolessness doesn't mean everything merges into an homogenous bowl of jello. That's not the idea. It's, it's non-dual, it's co-emergent arising that as these appearances arise, they are appearances, but they arise at the same time they co-emerge with, with recognition so that you're not having these arise without awareness. We, we're looking for self-awareness without self-consciousness. That's the idea. And so self-awareness is saying, is acknowledging, you know, um, I, I'm looking at your question It says, uh, something causes upset, is it to label upset? Um, it's awareness of what is arising. And the interesting thing about what is arising is that in every arising, there is a combination of a potential for intelligence and confusion. And the idea is to dis distinguish the dharmas, separate the dharmas, and acknowledge and appreciate the intelligence and boycott the confusion. Okay. Here's a, another question from the chat. 
Is there one last conscious practice before moving into sleep that invites lucid dreaming? Mm. Good. That, that is a good question. Um, in the practice, as I was taught it, you do a certain recitation as an aspiration. In other words, you, you set an intention. And, and really, um, the, daily, the daytime practice is to set the intention. Say, my intention is to catch the dream, to recognize the dream when I'm dreaming. And, and repeat that intention throughout the day. And again, before you go to bed, the traditional liturgy is, may I dream many dreams? May they be good dreams? And may I, the, one of the translations is, may I catch the dream? In other words, may I recognize that I'm dreaming while I'm dreaming. And the fourth step is, having recognized, may I train in the dream? And I know Andrew's talked about this. There are different stages of training in the dream, of manipulating the dream and then using it to travel to and, and see people and using it to transform situations. And ultimately, may I meditate? May I practice my meditation in the dream? That's training in the dream. So you set that intention before you go to sleep and repeat it a number of times not too many times, don't keep yourself awake, but repeat it and then be as aware as you can of the changing experience that you're having as you fall asleep. And the first dreams that you can catch are actually before deep sleep, but in the state of hypnagogic imagery. All right. and. Um... Here's another question coming from the chat. Can you please distinguish between being aware that you are dreaming versus having a lucid dream? I'm not sure I have experienced a lucid dream. Where is this one? It's towards the bottom of the chat now. Okay, ah, there it is, I saw it. Okay, being aware that you're dreaming versus having a lucid dream, they are the same. They're the same because lucid means that it's clear to you what's going on. So you are aware, oh, I'm dreaming. I even had a friend who, who despaired uh, at ever lucid dreaming because he was riding on a space monster and his teacher, in his dream, he was riding on a space monster and his teacher's face came right in front of him and said, you are dreaming. And he, he did not become aware that he was dreaming. <laughs> so he said, I, I give up. But, but he, I think he did persevere and was able to have that. So it, it's really not a, as big a deal. It, it's exciting when you realize it at the moment. And most people, when they first realize it, get so excited that they wake up. So it takes some training to stay with that for a little bit longer. But that is, it's just this simple rec recognition saying, oh, hey, this is a dream. That's it. Um, okay, and then it looks like it was Bridge who asked the question mm -hmm. and also has his hand raised now. So I will allow for a 
potential follow-up. Let's see. Yeah, so uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Perrin, for this session. Very helpful. Uh, so uh, I do have a follow-up question, which is that I've heard that when you're in a lucid dream, it's like as if you're awake now, uh, except you're in a dream, meaning you you can see your through your senses and you can walk and whatever, do things. So my own awareness of dreams is more periphery, meaning I know I'm dreaming, I'm having dream experiences, but it's not like the vivid experience of being in a situation where I can turn my head or, you know, anyway, have much more volition. That was my confusion, which is why I asked the question about being merely aware that one is dreaming, even for extended mm -hmm. time, versus what is called a lucid dream. You know, is there a significant difference, like, you know, uh, no, no, there isn't. It, the, the difference is how well you're practiced and trained in actually taking action in the dream. Now, it doesn't mean that it's going to look just like daytime. It could look like it could be anything. You know, some people have a dream and it, looks, it feels like the top half is, is, is clouded over. And it may just be that you um feel like you're seeing a situation it, it's all sorts of varieties but the question is have, having become aware do you then become have agency in the dream and do a, a particular practice that you remember to do so that that you might think of it as a a, a further level of training or experience but it's not a question of whether you're lucid or not it's whether you then take agency in the dream or not. And I think this is a good one to get a little more detail from Andrew next time. Okay, thank you. That's my understanding. It's limited compared to his. Thank you so much. And, and I wanna address Rana that she was talking about chanting. Uh, and I, and I, I wanted to mention that, the, and that, that connects with Peter's comment about speech, that we do create this kind of uh, vibration. Uh, and I, I use that sometimes to help me sleep, uh, that it creates a certain kind of, uh, kind of vibration so that we have a, a subtle mental vibration. We have a very tangible body vibration, but speech is in between. And it is, it's a vibration that's, that's not so solid. As, as body matter and not so ephemeral as mind, as, as thoughts. So just think of it as a, con, a continuum. And the chanting is accessing that particular, it's two things, chanting accesses two things. One, the, if they're just mantras, uh, that's a vibration. If they're words that you're chanting, it's important to understand the meaning of what you're saying while you're saying it, not just repeating words. So I, I hope that's helpful. I'm just guessing a little bit about what Rana was asking about. And uh, the next person with their hand raised is Bronwyn. And you have the audio. Thank you, Andy and uh, Joseph. So I've been, um, I've been trying to ask my dreams questions about my relative reality and so far, I haven't, I've been getting really strange responses back. 
and um, I've been asking my my mom about it who also is studying dreams and she she thinks it's not appropriate to um, to kind of work with your dreams in that way and that it's dreams are more about discovering um, the empty nature of reality so I just love to hear your thoughts on that okay. I, I haven't um, I've read a little bit about the dream uh, working with dreams I I do have like two or three lucid dreams a month so yeah thank you so first of all your mom is going right to the top <laughs> or, or, or actually we would say all the way down all the way down to the the source and and that's what i was saying of the different stages of training in the dream uh of um of agency in the dream ultimately practicing and the ultimate practice is resting in the nature of mind that lucid that aware, um awareness emptiness endowed with all the supreme qualities so your mom went all the way to the end now there are functions on the way there <clears throat> that involve that agency and you can study about them uh, the first ones are as simple as saying oh whatever i see i'm going to make it bigger and then make it smaller and i'm going to i'm going to multiply them and make many of them and if i see a group of them i'm going to make and then i'm going to bring it back down to just one or two and then and then training in different situations uh like in the dream being able to walk through fire or jump off of a cliff because you know you're you're dreaming so th these are all pathways toward that ultimate practice of resting in the nature of mind while you're dreaming now what you're talking about is a different function and that is a more psychoanalytic function or therapeutic function which is different than dream yoga not the purpose of dream yoga that doesn't mean it, it doesn't have value and Stephen Leverge, uh, the great dream researcher talks about using dreams and saying okay I'm going to dream I'm going to go down into the basement and look at what's hiding down there to discover what's in my unconscious not what we do in dream yoga but that doesn't mean it's not valid and and I, I would ask Andrew a little more about this next time but that's that's what I recall him saying as well I, I hope that that I hope that's helpful and you can look but again please everyone have a sense of humor about all the practice and Brownwin have a sense of humor and know that when you're asking the dream a question you're asking yourself <laughs> it's your dream yeah my I think my my dream my dream has a sense of humor <laughs> most that's, of the time <laughs> that's good. thank that's you so much Joseph and someone, someone uh, had a con uh, mentioned dream catchers, uh, and and that's an that's an interesting one. I, that's a I even have one. Um, you can't see it because I have this uh, virtual background, but I, I have a dream catcher hanging, and it's a, a Native American thing, and and I think it's used not so much as to catch a dream and do lucid dreaming, but as to catch a dream uh to protect you as as protection but i could be wrong uh it might have that lucid dreaming meaning um so that's interesting um maybe do the research and let us know what is the real function of a dream catcher
Okay, let's go for another 10 minutes and finish right at 1.30. Uh, okay. Great. I have uh, one more question queued up here. It's from the archive, so it's about the virus, which is still very much happening right now. So it's still relevant. Um, I find myself concerned that this virus will be around long enough for me to change and for the world to change. I am trying to use this time as best I can for practice, but I still get distracted at the same time, feeling pressure to really get down to it. How much time do we need to really change the world? Okay. Um, I'm, I don't see where that's... Oh, yeah, that won't be from the chat. Oh, okay. Say that, can you say it again? Because I was looking. Yeah, no problem. Um, I find myself concerned that this virus will be around long enough for me to change and for the world to change. I'm trying to use this time as best I can for practice, but I still get distracted and at the same time feeling pressure to really get down to it. How much time do we need to really change the world? No time at all. It changes every instant. Uh, so it's continuously changing, continually evolving. What you want to do is <clears throat> um, utilize, you know, take your time for uh, retreat type practice. And when I say that, I don't mean going away for a period of time. I mean, in any one moment, you know, Milarepa said, uh, they asked him, what's your, what does your retreat hut look like? He says, the body I'm in is my retreat hut. Wherever I go, I'm practicing. So take in your sitting practice, uh, you work to um, enhance your ability to recognize what's going on while it's going on. And then you take that mindfulness practice and try to apply mindfulness in action in everything that you do and recognize when your um, preoccupation with the virus or with what's going on in the world is actually has captured your mind and taken it away as opposed to you deciding how much time you're going to spend on it and you get to choose so again it's respond how you're going to respond to what's going on rather than getting caught and swept away by it and reacting to what's going on so um so so really that's that's the distinction and so the practice is to change the world guess where the world's happening it's all happening in your mind so by changing your mind that's the way that you can then re-enter the world and make the difference as much as you can and you know it's the uh it's the serenity prayer may i have the strength and motivation and courage to change what i can the serenity to accept what i can't and here's the key the prajna the knowledge the wisdom to know the difference between the two and that's how you change the world um i noticed in the chat that charles lee is charles lee i'm sorry uh is uh, has an input and i'd love to uh hear from him if uh if he's interested otherwise i'd like to um address some of the the comments there i, I don't think he's in the in the chat anymore okay i see uh, from charles lee to everyone yeah oh I see. he does not hear not not, not here anymore. yeah um yeah because there's something like think about not leaving okay 
That's fine. Um, and he says, people of color spend their entire life in America dealing with ill-conceived examples that bring up a lot of emotion and we can't leave. And there's a, an article that was recently written um, in reaction to white people and how we relate to people of color. And, and that was racism is, is terrible, being black is not. And there's this distinction of people saying, I'm sorry that it's so terrible to be black in America. Well, it's not terrible being black in America, it's terrible of how people who are black are being treated. And there's, there's an important distinction there. And, and so that's, that's an article that has recently come out. It might have been in the Atlantic, I don't remember. And there's a TV show that somebody was interviewed and it's called Dear White People. <laughs> and it's a comedy show. I haven't seen it, it's on Netflix, but I'm, I'm gonna check it out. And it, it's um, how people of color react to microaggression. And that is the subtle racism that pervades pervades things. So understanding all of these things and, and not saying, I can't imagine how you must feel, but, but instead saying, I want to know, I want to understand more. And as best I can, this is what Lojong is about, Tong Lem is about. I want to feel what you're feeling as close to it as I possibly can. Okay, so that's the comment I wanted to make on that. Okay, great. So uh, maybe time for one more question then? Sure, let's do one more. Sure. Um, is there a Buddhist correlate of the profound practice of resting in awe or wonder? A Buddhist correlate of the profound practice of resting in awe or wonder. What tradition is this profound practice of resting in awe or wonder from that would have a correlate with Buddhism? Do we know? Mm, not sure. If not, the whatever tradition it's from, the profound resting in awe or wonder would be the profound practice of resting in co-emergence. The co-emergence of appearance and emptiness and doubt with all the supreme aspects. Resting in uh, the union of bliss and emptiness, again, endowed with all the supreme aspects. The arising of appearance and emptiness, wisdom and emptiness, all of these would, be, it becomes profound because of the depth of recognition that it is, um, not a not just that the appearance is a appearance and not solid but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist form is emptiness also emptiness is form the simultaneous arising in awareness of both the appearance and its its own inherent emptiness so that would be resting in the profound awe because as it said, understanding one liberates all. That's in the Buddhist teachings. So having that insight into the nature of an appearance liberates all appearance.
Great. Thanks, Joe. Well, thank you all very much. I appreciate it. Um, this is a, really a pleasure for me. And uh, um, I apologize for not having as many profound quotes as, as Andrew has to offer. But I hope I was able to give you some references. And um, I hope we can continue the conversation at some point. Any, any closing remarks, Andrew? Anything about next week or any classes coming up for Andrew? Mm, I don't have anything prepared, but I know Andrew plans on being back next week. Um, Good. And look forward to seeing everyone then. I, I do want to do one little, as Andrew does sometimes, the shameless self-promotion, but if you are at home with kids, um, let's see how we can get this to come out. I don't know. I don't think, I don't think it shows up. I, I, I'm very proud of the book that I wrote with my sister called A Walk in the Wood, Meditations on Mindfulness with a Bear Named Pooh. And um, the Disney company that, that published the book has donated over 300 copies to the Nicholas uh, Children's Hospital in Miami. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. And um, I just want people to be aware of it and to be aware that uh, it's available and to share it with families. Because in this time when we're all cooped up together um, and when the kids can't go out and play so much or, or it's, you know, don't have the same resources, I want to share this as something that can introduce uh, both some fun and some mindfulness practice. And as Winnie the Pooh uh, says in the book, come back from the future or past to what I was just doing last. That's the way I know how to be Pooh here and now. So there's four lines of mindfulness as well. Thank you.